You're listening to New Voices, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I talk to Christina Van Dyke about medieval women philosophers in the Latin West. Christina is Professor Emerita of Philosophy at Calvin University and Director of Digital Resources and Medieval Projects at the Center for New Narratives in Philosophy at Columbia University. During our conversation, Christina and I discuss the contemplative tradition in philosophy and how it relates to the rediscovery and renewed appreciation of women's philosophical writings. We talk about philosophers like Julian of Norwich, Angela Foligno, Catherine of Siena, Hadwich, Margaret Ebner, and Hildegard von Bingen, all of whom were writing in the contemplative and mystical philosophical traditions. We also talk about the differences between contemplatives and mystics, Christina's personal history of studying women philosophers, and advice for people who might feel like their research interests don't fit in to the expectations of the field. The takeaway? Women did philosophy in the Middle Ages, and if there's any philosophical topic you're interested in from that period, you can probably find a woman who wrote about it. So Christina Van Dyke, welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to see you. So Christina, I was wondering if to start, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. What kind of philosophy are you interested in? If you could sort of describe maybe what most of your work is about or sort of where most of your philosophical interests lie, I'd love to hear that. Sure. So my main philosophical interests lie at the intersection of medieval philosophy, philosophy of religion, and philosophy of gender, which is a fairly unusual combination as it turns out. And over the past five to 10 years, I've been increasingly spending time looking at the medieval contemplative philosophical tradition because that's where you find women who are writing. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if you could maybe just give a quick little gloss on what contemplative philosophy means. Like, how is that different from other philosophical traditions that people may be familiar with, either from the medieval period or from other periods of the history of philosophy? Okay, yes, that's a great question. Contemplative philosophy goes all the way back to the earliest Greek philosophers that we know of. So when Socrates is explaining the apology, how he got his philosophical start, he says it's because the oracle at Delphi told his friend Chirophon that Socrates was the wisest of all, and he knew he wasn't the wisest of all. And so he sets out his quest there, not in terms of, you know, analytic arguments to be responded to, but rather as a, as a sort of search for truth. And he describes his life as finding meaning in these conversations with other people about the things that really matter in life. And it has this enormous practical influence. And so contemplative philosophy is sort of born at the same time. And of course, this is just the Western tradition Um, Chinese philosophy, the contemplative tradition obviously goes centuries back before Socrates. 
but in the tradition that <clears throat> most of us in the West are working with today, you can see it already in Socrates' work in Plato, um, in the Republic, when he talks about what exactly the philosophical life should be, you've got that really famous analogy of the cave. Mm -hmm. And the cave is progressing through to the stage where you're actually interacting with, right, the forms in and of themselves. And the highest level there is called understanding. And understanding is this relationship with the truth that is seen as kind of the, the ultimate contemplative goal. And so after that, you've got Plotinus, you've got Pseudo-Dionysius, you've got this huge tradition that picks up on that side of things, where what we want is not just this kind of abstract or disinterested knowledge of the truth, but this engagement with it, right? This participation. And in the Middle Ages, and once you get the combination in the Latin West with Christianity, you have people who combine this idea of God as the truth that we all have access to, that we can all interact with. And so contemplative philosophy in the Christian tradition just kind of develops right along with what we you know, think of as sort of more traditional philosophy. Um, it's what people are doing anytime they're talking about sort of what our, our end goal is and how we get there. And the contemplative tradition then in the Middle Ages kind of runs parallel to the scholastic tradition that's happening in the university setting. So once universities develop, it becomes kind of this, this place where knowledge becomes much more elite. You have to have access to a university. There are only mm. certain people who can get in. It's expensive right? It's a sort of highly specialized knowledge. And the kinds of questions and the ways that they're cashing things out there starts to deviate in certain ways from the kind of lived experience philosophy that, you, that until then is kind of run parallel to it. So there's this kind of split where contemplative literature differentiates from scholastic philosophy, which is what we usually study um, in the Western tradition, when we study medieval philosophy, we're looking at scholastics like Aquinas or Duns Scotus or Occam. What I've been interested in is the other part of philosophy, mm. right? So this whole time, there's this other part of philosophy that people have been engaging in and working in, but that today we retroactively have dropped out of the picture. Yeah, that's so interesting because when I think about the goal or kind of point of this contemplative tradition having to do with figuring out what the proper end or goal of human life should be or like what how, how is it like what's the best sort of thing for us to aim for like that seems very reminiscent for me of what I know about the scholastic tradition drawing on this Aristotelianism and kind of melding it with Catholic theology but it sounds like what you're saying is at that time, those two things were really intertwined. There really was this union between that scholastic conversation about, you know, what's sort of the ultimate end of human life and then the more practical conversation. But that in hindsight, we've kind of eliminated the more practical day-to-day -day implications. Is that right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and so one way to think about it is that at the time, even, 
people were writing in a number of different genres. Mm. So Aquinas writes sermons, you know, he writes prayers, he writes hymns even. Um, all these people were writing more than just disputed questions. But uh, there's actually a history that you can trace to a point in the 18th and 19th centuries where people actively were sort of determining what was going to get studied as philosophy, right? And what wow. was going to be understood as philosophy as a discipline. This brings a couple of other questions to mind for me. So we are having this conversation in the context of a project about extending new narratives in the history of philosophy. And I know because you, I know this about your work and also because you said this at the very beginning of our conversation that you're really interested in women's voices in the history of philosophy. And that's mm -hmm. one way that we can think about new narratives or sort of, you know, revealing existing narratives that have been forgotten or even it sounds like suppressed in some cases. But then there's also this other conversation about philosophical form and I'm wondering if you think those two, in your work, are those two united? So another way of asking the question is, what's the relationship between women philosophers in the Middle Ages and this contemplative tradition? And do you think that there's something to be said about that relationship that maybe kind of could also even shed light on why both the contemplative tradition and women's writings have been seen as less valuable? Ah, right. Um, so putting that last question to the side, part of what happens in the split is that as philosophy, as knowledge becomes kind of seen as this increasingly elite currency, it's not kind of everyday knowledge about how to live your life. And so the devalued people end up doing the devalued kind of philosophy, mm. right? Um, a friend of mine who works in philosophy of physics and physics education told me this great story one time. He was like, yeah, okay, so it turns out in the States where individual work is what's prized, the people who do individual physics projects are predominantly men, and you find women almost always working in group projects. You're mm -hmm. like, okay, sure. And then lots of people are like, oh, that's because women are inherently more social. Until, he says, you look at what's happened in Japan. And in Japan the culture is much more community focused. And there, guess who does all the individual projects? It's men, or all the communal projects are men. And the people who get stuck doing the individual projects are predominantly women, right? They're disproportionately. So mm -hmm. the proportions change because of what and who's valued. Wow. Right? So the people who are valued end up doing the work that's valued and vice versa. So you get exactly the same kind of phenomenon happening in the Middle Ages, where as these discussions about, say, you know, virtue and the meaning of life get increasingly specialized in the university setting, the people who are having those conversations are the people who are, you know, already valued in their societies. And the people who are having these more practical conversations about, okay, but, you know, I'm really impatient. How can I learn to be patient? Mm. You know, like, how do I live this out? What do I do day by day? The people having those conversations are the people who are more on the margins of their societies, which at that point in time include women. What I've found is that 
even in discussions of contemplative philosophy in the Middle Ages, the people that have gotten the most attention are not surprisingly people like Mester Eckhart or Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, they tend to be the men. Mm-hmm. And in even though in other disciplines, there's been a lot of attention already paid to these mystical and contemplative women in philosophy, their voices have still been almost completely left out. And so methodologically, one of the reasons why I'm engaging with so many of the women and less with the men is more just to, you know, sort of try to start to balance the scales Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. and to bring in viewpoints that haven't already been discussed. So you can go out and find books that are written, you know, on Meister Eckhart and his, you know, theory of darkness or whatever, but it's, you can't go out and find books that have in philosophy that have been written on Angela Foligno and her theory of spiritual darkness. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is just a a kind of drawing in to give people places to go from. Totally. So one question that I get all the time when I give talks on this topic is, okay, I work in medieval philosophy. I would love to be able to include some women on my syllabus, but I just don't know where to go. And so one of the things I've been trying to do in all the articles I've written on this is give people a bunch of places to start. You know, so if you're interested in self-knowledge, do check out Catherine of Santa's dialogue, right? Check out Julian of Norwich's showings. And if you're interested in these other topics, you know, here are these other people. You want to think about mystical union? You know, you got to read Hadwich. You've got to look at Angela Foligno. There are all these people that that make natural conversation partners once you Mm. know that they're there. Wow. Yeah. I've just had like three things pop into my mind that I wanted to ask you about. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just for my own understanding. I'm not sure I'm totally clear on the differences between mystics and then this contemplative tradition do you think are mystics part of that are they part of a different one um so yeah that's another great question the short answer for that is that i take mystics to be people who describe having had certain kinds of transcendent experiences and direct immediate contact with god in some way you know and you can have contemplatives who counsel you even on how to have those sorts of experiences, Mm. but who don't themselves ever report having, it's just not what they're focused on. Right. And so my star Eckhart talks, I mean, he's often counted as a mystic, but he himself doesn't talk about having these particular sorts of experiences. Mm. And so some people are like, instead of thinking of him as a mystic, it makes more sense to think of him as a contemplative. So contemplative can be used as a label that captures a kind of common project. You can think of it as being kind of a, a, a broad umbrella that you use to describe people who are interested in the kinds of practices, in the kinds of attitudes that lead to um, this, this sort of, I mean, people often talk about it as a union with truth. Right. So the certain kind of relationship or engagement with what we see of what we see is kind of the ultimate source of of truth. There can just be truth itself. And mystics 
are people who actually have experiences of various mm. sorts that are often described as part of a contemplative life, but that not all contemplatives are going to have. That's so helpful. All The best you can do is sort of prepare yourself for being able to have an experience, whether you do or not, whether it comes to exactly. you It's maybe, you know, right. if you are religiously inclined in God's hands or in the hand, you know, in the realm of the divine and not something you have direct control over. Yeah. So contemplativism, you can think of as trying to situate yourself so that you're optimally receptive mm. to that kind of experience or that kind of union. But of course, ultimately, it isn't in human hands, right? It's going to be the divine that, that you're receptive to that kind of makes that final step. And in, in the Christian contemplative tradition, um, it's going to be a work of grace. Yeah. So it's always ultimately going to come down to God's grace. And your job, I mean, God can like splop that grace on anybody, <laughs> right? So this is sometimes why you get mystics that aren't contemplatives. You can see, actually, um, you can think of Julian of Norwich as this kind of person. Because if you read her showings in the short text, she talks about how she's dying and she receives the series of visions that she writes about in the short text. And it's after that that she becomes an anchorite and secludes herself and spends the next 20 years like thinking about that experience and writing about that experience in the long text. So yeah. you can kind of think of her as somebody who becomes a contemplative because of this mystical experience that she has. It's interesting. I actually, um, early in my graduate education at Columbia, I took a class in the English department that uh, in which we read the showings. And I remember for my essay, you know, it was my first semester of grad school, things were, I, it got a little heady, you know, and I was like, talking, <laughs> thinking about like, revision, how like revising the short text to create the long text, like she's literally re, she's revisioning it, you know, she's experiencing exactly. the visions. And, and not, you know, it's not the same experience, but she's able to reflect on the experience and pick out, you know, details and elements that are worth highlighting, even if in that initial visionary moment, it was just like so all consuming and arresting that she wasn't able to see those things as it were. Right. Yeah. Well, and she talks at one point too of herself kind of continuing to experience these visions mm -hmm. and sort of gaining this deeper insight as they go. And Hildegard van Bingen talks about the same kind of thing too. She talks about having these visions that just kind of overlaid her everyday perceptual experiences. And they kind of like would sort of gradually sometimes impart different kinds of understanding or insights. You know, when we were first talking about the contemplative tradition, you explained how that tradition was sort of part of for at least a lot of the medieval period. It was like part of the same larger conversation that what we now think of as philosophy was part of. Mm -hmm. But I guess generally speaking, do you think that it's not that we are sort of going back and mining texts for like the sort of kind of remotest glimmer of somebody being interested in philosophical <laughs> questions, but rather that like actually these people were in philosophical communities, we just may not recognize them as such now? Is that is that more or less on the right track? <laughs> that's a yeah, no, I, I'd say that's definitely on the right track. 
I mean, if you think about it, we had this enormous body of literature that's written by women that touches on all kinds of philosophical topics in the 13th to 15th centuries. And the reason that we still have the people whose writings we have, it's not because they were the only ones who wrote. Mm. It's because they were part of conversations that got preserved. Right. So for one reason or another, right, these women weren't completely tangential to the conversations that were going on. So, you know, Margaret Ebner is probably somebody that almost nobody's heard of. And the reason why we have her book of revelations and why we have her talking about her own experiences is because she was part of this massive correspondence with John Towler and Henry Nordlingen as part of this friends of God movement. Hmm. And, you know, Catherine of Siena, obviously we know her through the dialogue, but she also, there were 300 letters that we have from her, despite the fact that she dies by the time she's 30. Wow. Right. Or 33. Yeah. I mean, she dies before she's 35. And we have all these letters that are part of this massive correspondence and this massive conversation that touches on all kinds of topics, including political and social philosophy, as well as, you know, yeah, just like what you'd expect, virtue and piety and mm. and whatnot. And Julian of Norwich, we have really good reason to think actually read Catherine. So these books are getting copied and transmitted and translated all around um, these areas because of the spiritual communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Catherine of Siena is affiliated with the Dominicans, which means that her works get shared with Dominican convents in England, which, and there's conveniently, right, like one of Catherine of Siena's closest disciples is somebody who's associated with a, in a friary and a, founds the Daughters of Zion and they translate her work. And right, so you just, you have all these connections mm-hmm. between the women whose works have survived and the wider conversations that they were part of. That's why we still have their stuff. Yeah, so I wanted to just get kind of a summary of what you want the listeners of the podcast to take away from this conversation or from the work that you've, you've published that people can access. Um, so honestly, the big takeaway is just that women did philosophy in the Middle Ages. That was something that I was explicitly taught did not happen. Mm-hmm. And it's something that even just a couple years ago, I gave a talk and one of the people in the audience was like, women didn't do philosophy in the Middle Ages. They weren't allowed to. You know, they couldn't go to the universities and they weren't allowed to be, you know, part of the higher echelons of the church. And it was just this assumption. And so the biggest thing that I want people to get is that actually there are a ton of women who did philosophy in the Middle Ages, it's just not part of the scholastic tradition, which is what we've been looking Mm -hmm. at. And that's kind of motivated the realization that there's this other entire strain of philosophy, Mm -hmm. this contemplative tradition that's Mm -hmm. alive and well in this period where there's really interesting and rich stuff going on and where I think you actually often find the complement of what's happening in scholastic philosophy. Yeah, so if I understand correctly, you started studying the scholastic tradition, is that right? Mm-hmm. And what was the- Oh yeah, I, when I went to grad school, um, 
I'd actually been planning and working on Aristotle, and then I got really interested in what Thomas Aquinas had to say about questions involving substantial form and human identity. Mm. And super spent, interesting. It is. It's super great. And I spent the first, you know, 10 to 15 years of my career mostly working on that. I did a couple side projects on the philosophy of gender and particularly food and gendered eating. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, didn't didn't look at sort of didn't run into this question about women doing philosophy in the Middle Ages until 2007. Yeah. So what prompted that discovery for you? Um, It was very pragmatic. Bob Pazna and I were editing the Cambridge History of Medieval Philosophy, just two volumes long, and we had 56 chapters commissioned, and we'd gotten drafts of all of them. And we were editing them. And at one point, I was like, Bob, there, there isn't a single woman in this entire thing. We have 1,600 pages about medieval philosophy. And you could read this and think that women had just decided to skip the Middle Ages. And so Bob and I had this conversation where we're like, look, there were tons. And I knew this from doing philosophy of gender, right? I'm like, there are tons of women who are writing in the Middle Ages, and Bob's like, okay, great. Where, mm-hmm. right? Where are they writing? What are they doing? And because we can't just add a chapter to this volume called Women and Medieval Philosophy, one of 56 chapters. You know, that's like the worst kind of tokenism. And so instead, Bob's like, well, let's find out where they were and what they were doing. And I'm like, oh, well, I already know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in this mystical tradition. I've been reading about that for years. And so I got assigned to write the chapter on mysticism for the Cambridge History of Medieval Philosophy. And that was when I started to really look into the, what these women were writing and where they were and what they had to say about philosophical topics. Um, So do you have any advice for people who are maybe earlier in their careers, like maybe even undergrads or grad students Mm -hmm. who are interested in working on women philosophers? Just just remember or know that for any given philosophical topic you're interested in in the Middle Ages, there are going to be women who have talked about it. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of finding who they are and reading those works. Because one of the nice things about the state of the literature is that you can find tons and tons and tons of these works that have been translated into English for various religious studies programs, mm-hmm. right? Or even for English literature, there's, you know, any, you know, so so French, English, Italian, German, a lot of these women were actually some of the first people that, that wrote in the vernacular. So this is the period where Latin is starting to turn into the vernacular in a lot of places. And these women, because they weren't at the universities, were some of the first people who were writing in the vernacular as opposed to in Latin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a bunch of the women who wrote in Latin too, but they, they're significant in the study of... Of sort of world um, of different languages because they're often some of the first authors that we have 
um, Julian of Norwich is often said to have the, written the first book in English. And, you know, and so you get, you get stuff like that pretty frequently. All of which is to say, if you find some topic that you're really interested in and you want to sort of bring women in, it's going to be possible to do that. You need to get creative and you need to start talking to people and looking outside of sort of the, some of these more closed conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So you can maybe think about like, well, what philosophical topic am I, am I interested in? And then maybe look outside of philosophy even to see who's talked about that topic, because sometimes these, right. these uh, thinkers get talked about at length in other disciplines but actually, you know, what we're all doing is philosophy. Um, it just doesn't necessarily get categorized as such. Called that. Exactly. For me, too, where I'm not a fan of, of philosophical gatekeeping, mm. right? So there are a lot of really robust discussions happening right now on, like, what counts as philosophy and what doesn't. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom because... I want to take this more holistic view of philosophy, which incorporates the practical as well as the theoretical elements. Mm -hmm. And I think just it's, it's true to lived experience that you, that better work gets done when you're more inclusive rather than exclusive about who you're talking to and what topics you're limiting yourself to. Yeah. I love that. That's so helpful. And I think like sometimes people who are starting out or are maybe that's not the right way to put it but you know when you're first taking formal philosophy classes which for so many of us doesn't really happen until undergrad it can mm -hmm. be hard it can feel like you sort of need permission like you need somebody to tell you oh you can find philosophy in these places that haven't been necessarily recognized as philosophical like if you have the, have an instinct that there is something philosophically interesting here, you can trust that instinct. And I think it's so important for people to hear that from somebody who is, you know, a, a real life philosopher. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think a lot of the times too, just pragmatically, it helps to link the topic to somebody that everybody kind of accepts as a philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So even though this might not be the most ideal of all situations, um, it's the kind of stuff that people read. Yeah. Right. So if you're doing a term paper on Aristotle and friendship, but you really want to bring in some women, that doesn't mean you have to like ditch Aristotle and friendship. Right. <laughs> you know, you can still use that theory as like a talking point. And you don't necessarily, I think, have to what what in early modern a lot of people have tried to do is sort of okay you've got Elizabeth of Bohemia who's conversing with Descartes so it's okay for us to include her in conversations about Descartes mm -hmm. and sometimes you'd be like well look they don't have to necessarily have been like actually literally talking to each talking. other yeah exactly if they're in if their ideas interact mm. you can bring those ideas into conversation mm -hmm. with each other mm -hmm. yeah that's such a good point and I do think that especially in the early modern period because people were literally conversing so much and like correspondence <laughs> was such a huge mode of philosophical inquiry. Like it's really natural to be like, Oh, well they were in correspondence. So of course it's legitimate to bring this person up. And it's like, yeah, that's true. And 
correspondence is a really and important also mode, there are other ways exactly there yeah there are and also it's a, it's a yes and kind of a thing like sure let's talk about the correspondence exactly. and also we can talk about and yes exactly I mean yeah as much as anything I think that's how I approach philosophy I mean in life in general <laughs> is this idea that you don't have to if you find something that's interesting that's awesome you don't have to be like oh but Thomas Aquinas isn't a woman. Mm-hmm. Like even when I was mm-hmm. just doing Aquinas um, I, and I was talking about his views on the body in the afterlife, I would give talks where I, the best, honestly, the best illustration I've ever come up with for re- what our resurrected bodies are supposed to look like are twilight vampires. Well, I love a it. <laughs> thousand percent for real, right? The four qualities we're supposed to have Twilight vampires have them all, and I honestly don't think that's an accident. I think that Stephanie Meyer did that on purpose <laughs> because of – anyway, long story. Again, it's just like a way of being more inclusive and, and making things more interesting. Yeah. And- I, I think sometimes we tend to think – and honestly, some people have been taught this, and I've been told this before. Like philosophy needs to be serious. Mm-hmm. Philosophy as a serious discipline, people won't take you seriously, especially if you're a woman – if you laugh or make jokes or aren't like basically demonstrating that you are very serious and you have very serious thoughts about very important topics. And I mean, frankly, if that were true, I wouldn't still be in philosophy. Yeah. Just that, that kind of stifling. I spent the first couple of years teaching, trying to be what I thought of as, you know, like a philosophy professor. And I was so miserable. And I finally just gave up and was myself. And I turns out I'm a way better teacher that way too. Yeah. I mean, when I was first taking philosophy classes, I felt really conflicted because on the one hand, I was like, I love this way of thinking so much. And I feel so much more myself than I ever have, mm-hmm. realizing that this is a way of yes. working through ideas. But then on the other hand, I feel like the environment demands this weird modification of who I really am and it can be a very like it can be a real crisis experience to feel that and I guess like maybe one thing too that oh super alienating so much and like maybe you know if there are are any people who ever listened to this episode who felt that way before it sounds like maybe one thing they can take away from this conversation too from what you've just said is actually being yourself will make you a better philosopher Yes. I think that's actually a really wonderful way to put it. So trying to stifle who you are to fit a model of what philosophy is. You're never going to be happy and sort of flourishing in the discipline if that's how you're approaching it. And I mean, I know that's a lot, that's why a lot of people have left the field too. It's Mm -hmm. just because they felt like they didn't fit and what they had to say wasn't welcome. Mm -hmm. And so that's also part for me now as a more senior scholar is to try to be someone who presents an alternative, right? And who's like actively reaching out and trying to work with and support people. And there's so many other people now that are doing this too. And what I love about this conversation is how it models what you were saying about needing this more practical contemplative side to the more kind of argumentative, argument focused, like rational side of philosophy. It's like actually 
exactly they complement each other and um yeah I mean, yeah again it's not an either or yeah it's not like if you're lo- you know in love with logic then oh you're being a bad woman or a bad exactly. feminist or you know whatever you should be doing social political and worrying about racial injustice and i'm like well obviously everybody should be worried about racial injustice but that doesn't mean you can't do logic right <laughs> right we want the richest possible intellectual landscape <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, I'll ask my final my final question now, which is: if you could assign one reading to all philosophy students, what would that text be? Honestly, and this is probably you know, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. I think he's got everything in there. <laughs> he's got the the contemplative theoretical stuff. He explains the relationship between the two Mm -hmm. he yeah he's constantly moving between look the goal of your life is to try to you know become the fullest version of yourself here's how this works theoretically here's how this happens in practice you know i just there's so much in there and i know that a lot of people are you know they're like oh but it's views on women were so horrible but none of that is necessary to the theories that he's presenting in the Nicomachean ethics. And so, yeah, he's sexist and racist and classist in various places, but not in ways that are essential to the meaning of the text. Yeah. And I mean, right. So, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, if you're going to be assigning, if we imagine an intro to philosophy class taught off of one text, which is not ideal probably ever, but if we just imagine that, like, in fact, the, you know, the fact that he has these misogynistic views that are not essential to maybe the core of some of the things you were just talking about, like, from a teaching perspective can be a good thing, because we don't want to ignore racism, we don't want to ignore misogyny, like, maybe it's okay, not to celebrate those views, obviously, in this figure, but to use it as an opportunity to challenge those views. And have a more nuanced well, understanding. Exactly. Or like in Aristotle's discussion of friendship, he has a discussion about whether men and women can be friends. And he's very hedgy. And it's very clear he thinks that the best kind of friendship is going to be between two men of virtue. Mm. And it is so fun to talk about why and to engage with students. And then also to pick up all the examples from contemporary culture where people clearly still think the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so it's also a really nice chance where people are like, oh, well, we know that it's wrong. Do we though? Like you go find me. How recently have female buddy movies started coming out where the women don't die at the end? Right. Thelma and Louise was a famous example for forever. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't count. <laughs> you know, like they were thrown together by circumstances and they die, you know, like they're doomed. It's like a demonstration of how this doesn't work. Right. <laughs> right? And like all these things about like, can men and women really be friends? Oh yeah. And, yeah, like this is still an active conversation today. So it's not like we don't read Aristotle because he had views that we don't like. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you read them and then you use that to engage and have the conversations that let people get better insight into their own beliefs and their own culture. Absolutely. And, you know, figure out what they want to do about that. Absolutely. Well, Christina Van Dyke, thank you so much. It was wonderful getting to talk to you. No, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you guys. 
Thank you for listening to New Voices in Philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This episode was produced and edited by me, Olivia Branscombe, with assistance from Madeline Birdsell. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth-Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.